You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. So good to see you this morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet before, my name is Sam. I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. And I uh, just want to say a special welcome to you this morning, especially to all the women who are in the room today. I think about the bi- You're welcome. <laughs> you know, I, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the variety of women that make up our church, the, the biological moms, there's the spiritual moms who've come alongside, there's, there's adopted moms, there's foster moms, there's kids' church leaders who have poured their heart and soul into the next generation, there's aunties, there's big sisters who've taken on the role of mom in your family dynamic and loved and served your younger siblings, and just all of those who've partnered as part of this community or community to, to raise up passionate little Jesus followers. I just want to say we are so incredibly grateful to each of you and to what you do every single day, especially the things you do that no one ever sees, but you do it faithfully as unto the Lord. I just want to say thank you. We honor you today. Let's clap one more time for all the moms, the women. Okay, speaking of awesome moms, Sarah is going to come up and read our scripture today. So come on up, Sarah. And uh, if you have a Bible, would you turn with us to the book of Matthew chapter 5? Matthew 5, we're going to be continuing in our series on the Beatitudes today. And uh, we'll start reading in verse 1. You can pull that up if you brought a Bible with you. There's also Bibles in the pews in front of you. You can open up your phone, your Bible app. Or worst case scenario, you can check out the screen because the words will also be up there as well. Would you stand with us for the reading of God's word? We believe that the words that are about to be read right now are the most important words you're going to hear today. Far more important than anything I'm going to say in the next 30 minutes. This is God's word to us. Thanks, Sarah. Reading from Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Verses 1 to 10. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, Sarah. You can all take a seat. Okay, well, if you've been around our church for the last uh, number of weeks, then you'll know we're in a series right now across all campuses of our church where we're exploring uh, the, the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the smartest man who ever lived. It's, uh, it's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon from Jesus, he, he paints this picture, so to speak, of what it looks like when the kingdom of God gets a hold of a person. When the kingdom of God gets a hold of a person like you or like me and, uh, and, and transforms us over time into this new humanity, into this countercultural society of people who live differently 
and think differently and act and behave so much differently than the world around us. Jesus says that, that the gospelized, or we've been using this word in sync, that those who are in sync with the kingdom of God, they're, they're poor in spirit. They mourn over their own sin and the brokenness of the world. They're gentle and lowly, or you could say they're meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what David taught on last week. And then this week, we're going to camp out in verse 7, where this new humanity, those who are, in, who are in sync with the kingdom of God, are described as merciful. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. On, uh, on August 27th, 2020, this new show surfaced on Netflix that quickly became the talk of the town, at least in circles that I kind of run in. It was this continuation of a blockbuster film from the 1980s, actually a trilogy of blockbuster films, uh, that I'm embarrassed to say, until I watched this new show, I hadn't actually ever seen the show. But after watching this, this, this new show, hearing about it kind of several times within a week, Jorley and I checked out the show and then later went back and watched all three of the originals from the 80s. It was kind of during that, that time in our lives known as 2020 where, uh, where you didn't go anywhere and we're sitting on a couch and binge watching TV shows it was actually thought of as a heroic act of neighborly love. <laughs> but back to the show, does anyone know which one I'm talking about? Summer 2020, trying to think back to that moment. Anyone know? Cobra Kai. And, uh, and if you've seen it, this is how the story goes. Daniel LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence from Karate Kid, they have this opportunity to sort of duke it out and work out their lifelong rivalry that's rooted all the way back in high school from this statewide karate championship from like grade 10. It's actually a pretty cheesy show, and I'm not necessarily endorsing the show, but here's the basic premise. There's, there's two dojos. Okay, there's Miyagi-Do, named after Mr. Miyagi. Remember, wax on, wax off. And then there's Cobra Kai, which is kind of this, like, aggressive, mean, bad boys or wannabe bad boys karate club. Miyagi-Do teaches the ways of Mr. Miyagi, which is, which is about self-control. And Mr. Miyagi would always teach all these deep, profound lessons within karate. It was always something to be used as defense, something to be used as protection for others. It's about inner strength. While Cobra Kai, on the other hand, had, had, had three rules. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. And, and essentially, the season, season one of this show is Johnny Lawrence, the leader of Cobra Kai, teaching his ragtag group of misfits that the best way to deal with your pain, that the best way to deal with your bully or your angst is to fight, was to hit, was to punch. Mercy's for the weak, no matter what the situation. Strike hard, strike first, no mercy. And while the message of our, our culture isn't nearly as forthright as Johnny Lawrence and the Cobra Kai, I think in many ways it serves as kind of like a, a parody or an exaggerated profile of the world that we live in. A culture marked by meanness, not mercy. And usually it's not mean to your face. I mean, come on, we're Canadians. We're polite, we're politically correct, at least to people's faces. And if you're in, if you're on the inside, you'd never feel the kind of meanness because, because you're the good guy. But step outside of the lines or, or identify with the wrong political party or be silent in the midst of a culture war. Let's just say make a mistake of any kind. Say or do something you wish you didn't. And just like that, you're out. Step outside the bounds and you're cut off and whether it's threads that are written about you on Reddit or being uninvited to the camping trip in the interior, be, be, because true, tr whether you truly deserve it 
which is very possibly the case, or because your association with you is now dangerous for people's own reputation, or you know, it might surface their own skeletons in the closet if they're too close to you. And so as quickly as you rose up in the ranks of popularity or, or friendship, you can be chewed up, spit up, and left for dead. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. And this isn't a new thing. This, this culture of meanness, in a lot of ways, it's, it's human nature. Mercy doesn't come naturally to us. What comes natural to us is self-preservation, pushing down the people around us to, to make ourselves feel better or using our power, even using other people to get what we want. There's this moment in John chapter eight where Jesus is teaching his disciples. A crowd of people have gathered around him to listen and to learn. And, and while that's happening, there's this religious group of people who drag this woman in front of Jesus, drag this woman in front of the entire crowd, and they say, Jesus, look at this woman. She's caught in adultery. She's a sinner. She, she was caught in the act. The law of Moses tells us that we, we should take out this woman. We should stone her. And I imagine in that moment, with all the rage as they bring in front of Jesus, they probably even have their rocks ready to go. He just needs to say the word, and they'll take, him, take her out. And what does Jesus do? Verse six says, Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his fingers. They kept on questioning him. They're getting riled up. And did you hear what we said, Jesus? She's deserving of death. We can't let this behavior go unchecked. What's this gonna do for our community? People are gonna think that this is okay, that it's allowed. No mercy, Jesus, come on. What should we do with this woman? Meanwhile, Jesus is quiet. And they kept on questioning him, verse seven says. He straightened up and then he said these words. Let any of you that's without sin throw the first stone. I love that moment. Jesus just completely dissolves all the energy in the room. He takes all the bullets out of their guns or the stones out of their hands. Let any of you without sin be the first to throw the, the stone at her. You know, we can stone her, but, but the one without sin is the one to throw the first stone. Look at verse nine. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What's that? What is Jesus modeling here? Mercy. A real life example of what he'd go on to teach in Matthew chapter five, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful. Okay, I wanna to try to do our best to lay out a bit of a definition. What are we talking about when we talk about mercy? What does it mean to be merciful? Well, Webster's, di di def blah, blah, blah. Webster's dictionary defines mercy as this. Compassion or forbearance towards an offender, an enemy or a person in one's power. It's, it's to refrain from enforcing something such as debt payment that's due. There's a commentator, a Bible commentator, who, who said that biblical mercy is extending kindness to the helpless and pardon to the guilty. Something that I realized in my study over this last week is that the fifth beatitude, this beatitude about mercy, is actually the most measurable of all the beatitudes that we've looked at so far anyway. It's not, it's not as abstract as some of the others because it's not just something that happens internally or in private. It's something that requires action. It's something that's lived out William Barclay wrote, mercy lodges itself in the heart, but expresses itself in the hand. Out of all the beatitudes, blessed is the merciful is the most measurable. It's like worn on the sleeve. It's not just something you are, it's something you do. 
And then Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a, a British theologian and thought leader, he said it like this, that mercy is a sense of compassion or pity for a person or for a group of people, but it's not just that. It goes beyond compassion and it links with this desire to relieve the suffering that people are experiencing. He said that the, the essential meaning of being merciful is compassion plus action. Compassion plus action. And one thing that is abundantly clear all throughout scripture, all throughout the biblical narrative is that this idea of mercy is at the very heart of God. Because not only is God merciful, not only is Jesus merciful, but it's one of his greatest concerns. It's like one of his top agenda items. All the way back in the Old Testament, we see God requiring his people to show mercy. I think about the, the, the book of Ruth, where farmers were, were told that they needed to not, not um, get all the crops from their field when they harvested it. They needed to leave a little bit around the edges for the poor and the vulnerable, for the refugees, so they could come away later and get some of the crops to feed their own families. And then continuing that theme of mercy, one of the prophets in the Old Testament wrote, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy, to walk humbly with, the, with your God. And another one, 700 years before Jesus would preach the Sermon on the Mount, the prophet Hosea wrote this, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings, Hosea 6.6. 6. And then Jesus quotes those words. He actually quotes Isaiah 6.6 6 several times throughout the book of Matthew as he's admonishing the Pharisees and the religious teachers of the day. For example, there's this moment where Jesus is, is uh, being attacked. He's being criticized for who he hangs out with, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. He's always getting in trouble for who he hung out with. And, and Jesus responds to his self-righteous accusers like this. He says, it's not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's pointing back to Hosea chapter six and pulling it into the present. See, over and over again throughout scripture, we see this idea that mercy and justice are primary concerns of God. And according to Hosea, and then echoed by Jesus himself, showing mercy is more important to God than even worship. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The prophet Amos had similar things to say in Amos chapter five. At this point in the story of Israel, God is absolutely fed up with the sins of his people. They're, they're doing their religious ceremonies. They're coming together for services. They're singing their cute little songs. All the while, they're mistreating the poor. They're praying on the weak. They're taking advantage of people, leaving the orphans and the widows to fend for themselves. And, and God says, enough is enough. I've had enough. I can't stand your noisy ego music. I don't want it. I've had enough. You know what I want, God says? Mercy and justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. That's Amos chapter five. In other words, you can say and sing whatever words you want, but until your love of God begins to shape your love of neighbor, you don't get it. Until your mercy, until the mercy that you received begins to express itself in and through your hands, you don't really get it. You've missed it. The kingdom hasn't really gotten a hold of you. Jesus says that those who are in sync with the kingdom of God are people of mercy. But what does it look like? What does it look like to actually live out this virtue, to be people of mercy? Well, I've done some extensive reading of different thought leaders and theologians and thinkers over this last week to see what they would say about what this looks like. 
And, uh, and I actually found Daryl Johnson, one of my teachers and professors, to have laid it out in just a really helpful way. And he pointed that the kind of mercy that Jesus calls blessed in Matthew chapter 5 is twofold. It's not giving someone what they deserve, not giving someone what he or she deserves, and it's also giving someone what they don't deserve. There's both a negative and a positive side of it. So I want to look at those one at a time and sort of try to drill down as we, as we try to understand this beatitude and what it means to be the kind of kingdom people that Jesus has called us to be. Okay, first, mercy is giving someone what they don't deserve. There's this great story in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus is telling this parable, and you've, you've probably heard it before. I think it's probably one of Jesus' most famous parables. Uh, it's called the Good Samaritan. And uh, if you don't know, here's the basic premise. Essentially, there's this Jewish guy who's been beat up and left on the side of the road. And we don't really know too much about this guy. We don't know why he's there or what his situation is, who he is. But it's pretty clear that someone has done some serious harm to this guy and left him there for dead. And so as the story goes, there's this series of different people who walk past the guy. And most of them move along very quickly into their, the busyness of their day and, and, and avoid the pain and the misery that this guy is experiencing as he bleeds out on the side of the road. But then the Samaritan comes along, and he doesn't know this guy. And besides, he's a Samaritan. The culture code of the day says that Samaritans and Jews, they they shouldn't interact with one another. In general, they hated each other. But the Samaritan stops, and he cleans up the guy's wounds, and and he takes him to a hotel, and he pays for him to stay and to recover. He cares for him. He bandages him up. He helps him. He shows him mercy. I think a reasonable question for us to ask is, did the, did the guy deserve mercy in that moment? Did he deserve the help? It's hard to say. Maybe. I mean, the Samaritan didn't know why the man was there on the side of the road. It's easy to assume, and I've always assumed as I've read this story over and over again, that the guy was an innocent victim who'd been beat up by bad guys, and maybe, maybe assaulted, robbed by a mob, maybe everything he had was taken away. Maybe it's possible that that's what, what the case was. But it's also possible that, that what, what happened was, was he was involved in some illegal activity. Maybe he was the thief or the robber and someone had defended themselves and, and left him there. Maybe he, he had done some really bad things that landed him in this situation. He may have deserved every bit of what happened to him. But see, the good Samaritan or the merciful, they don't need to know why a person's suffering. It doesn't matter. It wouldn't change what he would have done anyways. Mercy extends kindness to those in need regardless of the reason for their need. It's freely giving to someone what they don't deserve. How many people hold back showing kindness? How many Christians withhold kindness when they find out that a person's in need because of their own problems? Like, I don't know about you, but I think it's so much easier to help someone when when they're in that place, when when they're an innocent victim, when they're in a place that they find themselves in because of something that happened to them, something that was out of their control. But when someone's in poverty because they gambled away their entire income or because they were lazy or or didn't take initiative or because their pride stopped them from reaching out and getting help from their addiction, it can be so much more difficult to show mercy to those people who are living in the consequences of their own actions. But the merciful, they simply see the need and they find creative ways to meet it. To show mercy is to step in and help a person regardless of whether or not the current circumstances that they're facing are self-inflicted, whether or not they're responsible for it. It Makes me think about Mother Teresa who opened hospices and took care of lepers and 
those who were dying in the streets. She treated them like family. She welcomed them in, nursing them in their final days, just loving people, giving them shelter. She didn't know these people. She didn't know what led to their situation and where they found themselves. She served. In many cases, she risked her own life. She risked her own health, helping people who were probably dangerous due to the ailments that they faced. Showing mercy always requires risk. And going back to to Jesus' parable, the Good Samaritan, he risks his life in a lot of ways. And here's what I mean by that. He was a Samaritan, like I said, and the guy on the side of the road was a Jew. And it's actually really difficult to unpack the, the level of animosity and racism that was happening between the Jews and the Samaritans. I don't even think there's a modern example of quite how intense the rivalry between the two was. And, and suppose the, the, the friends of the wounded guy came and saw, came to help the guy, came to, to clean him up and get him, and they saw him with the Samaritan. They would have immediately thought that it was the Samaritan who did this to him. And they probably would have retaliated. He took a risk. Showing mercy required that he risk what could happen to him by helping a Jew in that culture. And in, in living in our context in Coquitlam in 2023, it might not often be physical risk when showing mercy. In some cases it could be, maybe sometimes. But showing mercy in a situation is more often going to involve risk of reputation, risk of being misunderstood, risk of, of saying something, standing up for someone when other people have looked down on them or written them off. There's this story that um, created mass ripples and waves in the inter- on the internet in 2019. You may have heard about it. It's, it's this heartbreaking story about this guy named Botham Jean, just an, an, yet another black man who was unjustly killed, this time while sitting in his own apartment after a long day of work. And apparently the woman that shot Botham that day, she, she, was en- she entered his home and she thought it was her own home, which was a level up in their apartment building. So she walked in, saw him on his couch, assumed that he was an intruder, and shot him and killed him there on the spot. Just brutal. And regardless of the reason for the killing, it was just an absolute tragedy, heartbreaking. It should never have happened. But there was this moment in the trial that got the world's attention. Botham's whole family was there, and they were grieving, and they were sharing testimonies, how much this would would ruin their life and change their life. And the lawyers on both sides were making their appeals, and... And there came a point where Botham's younger brother, Brant, had the opportunity to take the stand and to address the killer. And here's what he said. Here's the words he said. To be clear, this is him talking to the woman who had killed his brother. He said, I can only speak for myself, but I forgive you. And I know that if you go to God and ask, he will forgive you too. And again, I'm speaking for myself, not on behalf of my family, but I love you. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I personally want the best for you. I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you, because I know that's exactly what Botham would have wanted for you. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think you giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. And then he looked to the judge and he said, can I I hug that woman? And he went over and he hugged the woman that had killed his brother. Wow. What she did was, was inexcusable. It was horrific. And probably what she deserved in that moment was to hear Brant's rage 
She killed his brother. She took something away from the family that they could never get back. But instead of telling her everything that she deserved, instead of telling her to rot in hell, he hugged her. He embraced her. He said, I forgive you. What an incredible act of mercy. As I watched that clip over this last week in preparation for this sermon, I felt Jesus saying, in sync are you, Brant Jean. In sync with the kingdom of heaven are you, blessed are you. You also will be shown mercy. 16 years old, what courage it must have taken to say those words. C.S. Lewis, uh, he said that to be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. To be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable in another because God has forgave, forgave the inexcusable in me. And, and Brant Jean, he showed the world what it looks like to give someone something that they don't deserve, to love an enemy, to show mercy in the face of injustice. Okay, let's, let's continue working our way through this text, this idea. Mercy is giving something what they, some, someone what they don't deserve. It's also not giving someone what they deserve. Let me explain. Uh, I want to share another parable from Jesus. It's from Matthew chapter 18. And, and here's the basic premise. There's, there's this king who wants to settle up his debt with a servant that he has. And the guy owes him a lot of money. Like the text calls it 10,000 bags of gold. But with the exchange rate and accounting for inflation, most people would say that it, it's the equivalent of 10, or sorry, $20 million in Canadian currency. And I think all of us here would probably agree that that is a lot of money. While, if you, if you don't think that's a lot of money, I would love to talk to you after the service. Because there is a lot of great projects that we would love to do here locally and around the world. But um, the servant has this massive debt, $20 million, and the king comes asking for his money, asking him to pay up, but there's no way for the servant to pay the debt. It would take him every day for the rest of his life and then some to pay back the debt. And so after pleading with his master to give him some time to repay it, to have mercy, to, to be patient with him, to consider a payment plan at least or something, the master has compassion on the servant, has mercy on him, and he completely cancels the debt. That massive weight that had probably been hanging over his, 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 himself, over his head, this crippling debt that had been keeping him up at night and causing him to have anxiety and stress, it was all gone in that moment alleviated completely. His debt was paid in full. Okay, pause. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what God has done for us? Shown us great mercy instead of giving us what we deserve. He has canceled our debt. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God no longer counts our sin against us. He declares us innocent. He declares us to be debt-free, not because that's what we deserve. It's actually contrary to what we deserve. But because of his great mercy, because he is just that good, he cancels our debt. Mercy cancels debts. And I think it's important to say that when God shows us mercy in our sin, it's not him saying that our sin doesn't matter. It's not him taking kind of a laissez-faire attitude towards it, like, ah, you know what, it's all good. <laughs> Don't worry about it. No, it, it, it matters a lot. The debt had to be paid. Justice had to be served. But God took our, our sin upon himself. And then God took upon himself the awful punishment that was due to us. Our holy God, he doesn't give me what I deserve. He doesn't give you what you deserve. He actually gives himself what we deserve. He goes to the cross. See, being merciful doesn't mean ignoring the gravity of sin and evil and wrongdoing. It doesn't mean, oh, it doesn't matter. 
No, it does matter. It matters a lot. The cross says that our debt, that, that, that our sin matters an extreme amount, so, so much. But God in his mercy didn't give us what we deserve, didn't give us the punishment, the justice that was required. Instead, he took that punishment on himself. So back to the parable. The master forgives the servant. He cancels his debt, allows him to completely walk free. And then what does that forgiven servant do? How does he respond? Maybe you know the story, but look at verse 28. When the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. That's the equivalent of like 500 bucks. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servants fell to his knee and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all your debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have the same mercy on the fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. And then this is the verse I wish was not in the Bible. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from, from your heart. Okay, let's wrap it up there and pray. <laughs> no, just kidding. But to recap, the servant has been forgiven this massive debt, $20 million, a debt that if I, if I calculated it correctly, based on the average wage of a servant in the day, it would take him 330 years to pay back that debt. It would be, it would be multiple lifetimes over before he'd be able to pay it, but the king had mercy on him forgave him, debt canceled. And then the servant turned around and threw a guy in prison who owed him 500 bucks. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Like to me it does. Until I look at my own life and I say, oh, no, I do that. God has been so kind to me, so merciful to me. He's forgiven me for, for a debt that I was incapable of paying. Jesus took what, what I deserved on the cross and reconciled me to a holy God. Because of Jesus, I have a future hope and a promise of eternity. And yet, I can harbor bitterness in my heart because of something that someone did to me or someone said to me. I can pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, all the while being so merciless in the way that I deal with the people who hurt me, who wrong me. It appears that there's this interconnectedness between receiving mercy and showing mercy. It comes up several places in scripture, especially in Jesus' teaching, like in the Lord's Prayer, where he says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our, our, those who trespass against us. So forgive us as we forgive others. Or Matthew chapter six says, if you forgive others, people when they, other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And then even in this fifth beatitude, it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So the question that we have to grapple with is do we only receive mercy from God when we show mercy to others? Like unless we're merciful, unless we forgive, we won't be forgiven. Is that what the text is saying? Well, no. I don't think that's what it's saying at all. My best reading of the biblical story and the vast majority of scholars and thinkers, theologians, would say that no, receiving mercy from God is not contingent on us showing mercy to others. It's, it, it's, you know, it's important to, to interpret scripture with scripture. And what we see all throughout the biblical story is that God saves us first. That salvation is this free gift of grace. 
Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were still merciless, Christ died for us. We're not saved based on anything that we have done. We're saved by grace. We're saved because of what Jesus has done for us. He is merciful even when we are not merciful. Full stop. That is true. He's a God of mercy. And here's what I think Jesus is saying in this moment. And again, some work from Daryl Johnson was so helpful in helping me to lay this content out. But if we're asking God for mercy while at the same time refusing to show mercy to another person in our lives, then I don't think we're actually asking for mercy. Okay, stay with me. Hear me out. We're using the words. We're saying, Father, forgive me, have mercy on me, but not living in that reality of those words, not fully grasping what it is that we're asking for from the Lord. Because when I refuse to forgive you, I'm implicitly saying that, that you need to first pay the debt you owe me before we can be reconciled. And if I bring that same spirit into God's presence, it means that in spite of my words, I either think that, I, that I'm capable of paying my debt that I have paid my debt, but either way, I'm not asking for mercy. I'm justifying myself before God. If I'm asking for mercy from God, but I'm not willing to extend mercy to you, then I'm not asking for mercy. What I'm asking for is justice, and I do not want that. To withhold mercy is to lose touch with the entire gospel, to lose touch with my own debt, forgetting that I am the needy servant in the story. I'm the one that needs mercy. Okay, listen, I, I know that this is difficult stuff, especially for some. I know there's people in this room who, who have been deeply wronged by others, hurt. You know, words have been spoken maybe about you that are not okay. Things have been done to you that are inexcusable. And if you're struggling to show mercy, have patience with yourself. Maybe the first person that you actually need to show mercy to is yourself. And then we turn to Jesus and we say, would you make me like you? Show me what it means to be merciful. Help me by your spirit to be a person of, of mercy because I can't do this on my own. Matthew says that those who are in sync with God and his kingdom, they say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then as they receive that mercy from God, over time, they begin to become conduits of that same mercy. Okay, I want to take a few moments to pray. So if you're comfortable, would you close your eyes all across this room? I want to, I want to lead you in a bit of a guided prayer. And uh, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye that you're just at the foot of the cross, the cross of Jesus. Imagine the scene. You're there on the hill, knelt down before the cross. And I want you in that moment to just take a moment and look back at all that Jesus has done, all that he's forgiven you from. And we say in that moment, God, have mercy on me. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy for us. And I want you to think about Maybe there's a person in your life or a couple of people who it is so incredibly difficult to show mercy to them, to show grace. I mean, on Mother's Day, I think maybe it could even be a mother or maybe moms, it's a child who's, who's walked away or who's been unkind. 
could be anyone, whoever it is in your life, would you just think on that person for a moment? I want you to think about them also kneeling beside the cross there with you. And just as you said, Lord, have mercy on me. If you're able, just in your own heart, in your own mind, would you say, Lord, would you also have mercy on them? You have mercy on this person. Not because they deserve it, but just like you did for me, would you do for them? Would you show them mercy? God, we thank you for this text, for this section of scripture, for this idea of mercy that we see all throughout scripture. Again, we just say thank you for the mercy you've shown us through the cross, through your death, for your resurrection, for your welcome of us into your family. Would you help us as Coquitlam Alliance Church, as a community, as the family of God, to be marked by this fifth beatitude, to become over time people who are merciful, who show mercy not only to those who deserve it, but to those who don't, those who hurt, who brought pain. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.